is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, go zoo. Enjoy! Fucking go zoo. Dude, yeah. Oh, dude, it's it's crazy. I uh, And I hadn't seen it in so long. I, I remember showing it to friends when I was younger, and half the fun was them, like their reaction afterwards, which was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it so clearly because I was like, yeah, hell yeah. I, this, I just freaked the hell out of my friends. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but at that, but I, I do. The one thing that I remember back then was that I really loved the atmosphere of it. I took very few notes on this, but one of the one mm. of the few things I wrote down was just like that I love this. Yeah, that I just yeah I know. Even though it's sort of a, I don't necessarily mean that like I want to live in the world that it takes place <laughs> in, or, or but I kind of yeah. do. Yeah. There's just yeah. something about yeah the atmosphere and the the tone of everything that it, it just is like yeah yeah right absolutely not being very articulate about that but well <laughs> and also like even to the the thing of yeah like freaking out your friends like what the fuck did I just watch like this totally has that uh, use but it's also not it's not extreme in yeah. the way that like other Takashi Miike movies like like audition. Like, yeah, right. Ichi the Killer, or it's not one of those. Like, it is shocking in the sense that it is just incredibly strange. Yeah, but it's not shocking where you're like, it's not Edge Lord shocking, right? It's not like, whoa, dude, he fucking so violent, so you know, extreme, right? But yeah. it is extremely weird. It is, yeah. So it is extreme in its weirdness. Um, yeah. And it's like sort of collage of symbols, you know, it has, so like, there's, I think back in the day, I didn't understand a lick of it, but I did like the mood, like, <laughs> and so, and, yeah. I, and I went with that. So, you know, I was always like, yeah, Gozu, I, I like that movie. <laughs> it's It's a movie <laughs> for me, even though it was so fucking weird. But watching it now, older, I'm like, yeah, I'm still not entirely sure, but I think I can pull things out that I didn't before, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's just so much, like, it, it's obviously, like, a ton of, like, folk stories, folklore, folklore yeah. folk symbols. I don't know. Would you, like, would you call this, like, a folk horror movie? I, I think, I mean, pe- the people who actually take genre, subgenre, categorization type stuff seriously mm. would be really angry at me for saying, yes, I would. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, folk horror usually, I mean, I'm sure eventually we'll do something in that category, but people usually just think like the Wicker Man. Yeah. That, it, that, that folk horror means like witches, paganism, right. old Europe, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah. that's a pretty limited, uh, whatever, Eurocentric view of... Yeah. I, but I, but I, I also think the other reason why people would take issue with calling Gozu folk horror is, is Gozu a horror movie? Actually, that's kind of true. <laughs> like, is it actually a horror movie? Yeah. But I still think, yeah, this is folk horror. Fuck it. Why? Yeah. But yeah, that's um, the beauty. The beauty of it is the mystery of like what Gozu actually is. <laughs> because it is horrifying. Yeah, right. It's also really funny and yeah. sort of 
it just has a lot going on and not all of those things are horrific. Yeah. But some of them are. Yeah. Well, I, we could sum it up just very shortly. I guess I'll just do the the super quick summary. Yeah. Because this movie is very, uh, I guess, tangential feels like mm. the word. Like there's lots of things that happen that aren't really uh, about the plot or anything like that. So I'm just going to leave that yeah. stuff out and yeah. say... Um, Okay, as always, if you haven't seen Gozu and you want to see Gozu without uh, spoiled aspects of it, go see it now. Blah, blah, if blah, you, if we're you can gonna... spoil this movie. <laughs> I know, it's sort of mean. <laughs> that yeah. doesn't really mean anything with Gozu. Because but... I think even if you know about some of the more maybe infamous scenes in it, it's still not yeah. going to... They're, they're not going to be any less weird if you know Oh yeah, coming. totally. Um, so the gist of it is... Uh, Gozu is a 2003 movie by uh, Japanese, uh, whatever, legendary Japanese director Takashi Miike. Uh, famous, I guess, mostly for probably Ichi the Killer and Audition being a huge influence on um, Quentin Tarantino, specifically Kill Bill, I think, is where a lot of that rubbed off. But... Uh, you know, big big name in Japanese, uh, late 20th century Japanese film. And he made a lot of movies about a lot of Yakuza movies, some of which are completely uh, cartoonish, over-the-top, amazing, and some that are more understated, some, you know, but, but lots of Yakuza movies. And this is technically one of those because it, it concerns uh, a member of a Yakuza family who seems to be seems to have lost his mind um, to have being, having a nervous breakdown. Things are not going well for this guy, and he's become a liability, an embarrassment, whatever, to the rest of the family. So the, the head of the Yakuza clan says to another younger, I think maybe more probationary member of, you know, you get the sense that the, the guy he's talking to is not very high up in the, the order thing, says, hey, you got to go take this dude out of town and kill him. <laughs> um take him up to Nagoya, kill him, take him to the dump. We've got a guy there who disposes bodies for us. Just do this for me. It'll be good for your career. So the guy, you know, he has his conflicted feelings about this, the brotherhood of Yakuza, etc. But, you know, you can't uh, disobey a direct order like that. So he drives this uh, Ozaki, the mentally deteriorating Yakuza brother, drives him out to Nagoya and basically loses him. I guess would be the simplest way yeah. to put it. And so then most of the movie is him, is, uh, what is it, Minami? Yeah, uh, the, yeah, yeah. yeah the younger just... brother, younger Yakuza brother, they're not literal brothers, um, trying to find where Ozaki's body is, who knows who saw what happened to him, where did he go? Because he knows that if he goes back to Tokyo and says, oh, I lost him, that he's going to end up in the dump too. So yeah, that's pretty much it. And then th that all happens in the first... 15 minutes. Yeah. And then you got an hour and a half of very strange stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, all revolving around uh, Minami's search for Ozaki. So, yeah, it's like uh, sort of this, would you call it like an Odyssey kind of tale or something? Like he just, but it's all in this one, it's all in one town. I'll, I'll address this right away because I thought that that was really funny that, yeah, it, it is. It begins in Tokyo. It begins and ends in Tokyo, but most of the movie happens in Nagoya, which is Japan's fourth largest city. 
but is presented in the movie like a hillbilly town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Like everybody has, I, I don't I don't speak Japanese, but I almost feel like they must be doing some kind of like, y'all ain't from round yeah, here yeah. type accent. Yeah. Because seriously, everybody is, they act like bumpkins. Like, oh, we don't get no big city folk like you. Yeah. You ain't from round here, partner. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's just really funny to look like, it would be like somebody saying like, you know, you're from San Francisco. <laughs> and like, oh yeah, I'm out in the sticks in San Francisco. <laughs> like, <laughs> Seattle. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's that's part of the humor of it, I assume. There's like, there's a lot of that probably goes over my head of like, I'm trying to catch like, what is like Japanese references that yeah. I probably won't catch. But I can appreciate that I think that he's injecting like a ton of humor, <laughs> just absurd humor into this, you know? I mean, Mike has this reputation from Mike is not an edgelord, but edgelords do like Mike, I mm. think would be a fair way to put it. Yeah. He, he has a reputation as an extreme guy. Yeah. But he's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost always, not everything, but there's often humor like yeah even really juvenile humor really clever yeah. like all all kinds of humor yeah um, he, he definitely does have scenes where i i have to like almost look away and squirm at like the body horror stuff you know like almost always like um it goes you not as much there's a little bit but yeah, yeah. it's really not too it just seems sort of strange and maybe i would actually pick something else but i i sort of feel like if you this might not be the worst place to start if you've never seen a Takashi Miike movie. Oh, yeah. Because it's not as harsh as mm. some of the better known ones. Yeah. Like Ichi the Killer. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the one everybody goes to, that yeah. audition. An audition, yeah. Which is proper, properly horrific. I mean, they're both great. I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. Even if I'm saying like edgy teenage film guy will always talk your ear off about those <laughs> movies. I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's that's like a meme or whatever, but he's not wrong. Right. Yeah. No, they're, totally. They're, they have the reputation they have for a reason. Yeah, totally. Well, the one thing I got about this movie, which I, I didn't I didn't notice before, but now it totally caught me. And it might be because I I've just got off reading a bunch of like William S. Burroughs. But it felt like William S. Burroughs to me. Oh yeah, like I can see yeah, that. yeah, just like these absurd like routines, these absurd small scenes that are all happening one after the other, and they're almost they almost feel kind of it's it's in a linear plot. It's they're they go together to fit the story, you know. But all of the scenes happening feel like these little kind of cut ups in the way that Burroughs would have maybe done that. That's interesting that you've been reading some Burroughs um, because I just finished, I know whenever an episode or two ago talking about Ian Sinclair, I just finished oh, yeah. Slow Chocolate Autopsy, which is his most, at least of, of the stuff I've read so far, is his most Burroughs-influenced, um, like Burroughs is briefly a character in it. Oh, um, nice. Book of Sinclair's. And so, yeah, that that does fit. There is a, maybe some part of my mind is in that similar routine kind of headspace. yeah. Uh, just coming from the Sinclair side, mm. and you've got the Burroughs side, but we, but it all intersects and goes because I also thought the Yakuza boss 
looks like Japanese Ian Sinclair. Oh, it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, maybe, it's not, maybe I'm stretching things here, but I was like, oh, it's Japanese Ian Sinclair with a ladle up his butt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, dude, the ladles. Yes. His little display on the volcano <laughs> with each label, and they were labeled. They were labeled like like soft, hard in English. Like, in English, yeah, <laughs> in English, like. <laughs> but yeah, his the 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 leader of the Yakuza clan can only um, can only get an erection when he when he has a ladle up his butt, <laughs> um, and when he is choosing ladles he has this sort of schoolboy glee he does this little <laughs> dance and it's it's actually adorable um, <laughs> this is an aspect of Nikkei in general yeah like like visitor q it comes to mind mm. too where it's like somehow he manages sort of like john waters uh. to make to make things that are objectively disgusting yeah <laughs> and and horrible seem really endearing <laughs> um, yeah and almost cute yeah without being like oh no this is still real gross and weird yeah but like i think there's there's a similar thing like whatever that, that john waters loves his freaks you know yeah. that he's like oh yeah no we're all freaks but there's a genuine love there and i feel like Mike has a similar thing that like oh i am totally fascinated by this freaky stuff but mm. it's a genuine love not like a Ooh, look how dark and lurid and yeah, you know. And I feel like that the the Yakuza boss's ladle dance is a sign of that. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's kind of interesting because it was like it was also paper mache volcanoes that each ladle was like in. <laughs> like he made it himself, like a <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> know, like art class. Yeah, or you imagine if he he like tasked other Yakuza guys like. Make me volcanoes for yeah. my labels. And they just like, you picture these like rough and tumble dudes just yeah, making like leather suits. Yeah. <laughs> making making vol- paper mache volcanoes for the boss. <laughs> oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> there was also the innocence of like the main character, dude. So, uh, Minami. Yeah. Minami, the, the Yakuza who's going on the quest. And you essentially, you've, as the movie goes along, I mean, you learn this pretty early on that the dude's probably a virgin. Seems like it. Yeah. But apparently also has like a, a fucking dripping hog. <laughs> yeah, they, they, <laughs> yeah, they point that out a lot. Yeah. A lot. Um, <laughs> you never see yeah. it, but... No, uh, no but they, but it's, it's, they yeah. let you know. Yeah. But the dude does, is like totally, <laughs> is totally like uh, kind of innocent and like, even in the way, like, there's the one scene in the beginning when he gets to Nagoya and he's, like, looking for this crew, the Shirayama crew, who's, like, like the, uh, the uh, I don't, they're, like, a crew that can help out their cleaners or something. Like, yeah, they, I think they run the dump or, yeah, like, something. the body dump spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, he loses his brother. Uh, the fellow Yakuza member. Ozaki. Ozaki. He loses him and he calls the boss up and the boss is like, you got to find the Shirayama crew. And so he's like, okay. So he like he gets an address for this crew and he goes and it's like a Buddhist temple or something or uh, um, some kind of temple. Um, 
And so then he goes to find like a cop. But it, when he sees the cop, it's hilarious because he's kind of hidden. Like he's kind of like, he's like also uh, like leaning against the pole, like the way a kid would. Mm-hmm. And then the cop kind of like walks out like, hello. And he's like, he just goes, where is the Shirayama crew? <laughs> <laughs> Which it cracked me up because it's like a kid who's like, like, how is that cop supposed to know what the hell a Shirayama crew know. is? You know, especially again, <laughs> Nagoya is presented in this movie as being a tiny town with yeah. like one cop who knows yeah. everybody. Yeah. But this is Japan's fourth largest city. <laughs> <laughs> and the cop, the cop even says something like, "You're not from around here, are you?" Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like, like a small town. Like, like, oh, you know, yeah. If you really were in a town of a, a thousand people, you feel like you could just ask the crew, the, the cop, like, "Hey, where's this guy?" And he'd be like, yeah. Oh, he lives over there. You know, that would yeah. be a legitimate yeah thing. Well, that's funny. I am thinking about that. Like, if we were to film a movie like that in Chicago. I would just choose some random suburb or something. Yeah. That's kind of off and be like Chicago, but frame it as it's like hillbilly. Like, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you just you couldn't name you you wouldn't call it like Flossmore. Yeah. You would call it Chicago. Yeah. And then you would film it in Flossmore. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And you'd be like, this is Chicago. <laughs> no skyline. Yeah. No. No people, just just right. the, the main street of this little suburb. <laughs> this is Chicago. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. That's so funny. But uh, yeah, so the, the the dude asking the cop is so innocent, and then the cop is like, well, "I don't know where that is. This is an address for a temple." And uh, what's his name? Manami is basically like, kind of like snatches the paper out of his hand like a kid would, and just folds it and be like, "Never mind, I'll find him." You know, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. But his whole like his whole presence in the movie is like he's kind of like soft and like oh sorry sorry no uh should I be doing should I like it, for a yakuza member he's like this really yeah. soft dude yeah you have a really hard time imagining there's there's a couple of moments where he you know where he takes out his gun and menaces somebody yeah and it it is kind of hard to imagine him actually killing anybody. Yeah. Given most of his, you know, that he really doesn't want to kill Ozaki. He's he's going along with it because he knows what'll happen to him if he doesn't, but he's like, man, I don't want to do this. Oh, and, yeah. You know, Ozaki's going crazy and, you know, uh, before he goes missing, you know, is threatening uh, strangers and all this stuff. And it, it's like, oh, no, no, we, you know, I'm so sorry. Don't, don't, don't mind him, you know, get out of here. Like, yeah. And so it's just so hard to imagine, like, how and why did this guy get into the Yakuza? Yeah. Because he doesn't seem violent. He doesn't seem Oh, well, he says, like, Ozaki, Ozaki saved his life. That's right. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if he was a kid or something that got pulled out of a bad situation. Yeah, a troubled teen or yeah, something. Yeah, maybe like, something like that, you know? Or an orphan <laughs> or a, maybe it's that kind of... Yeah, which actually, but but even that thing. Let's go with orphan. We don't have anything, yeah, but yeah. I like I like orphan. But that makes this this does have like a fairy tale quality to it. Oh I yeah, guess might might be in what we're why calling it folk horror doesn't feel totally wrong, right. or at least something along those lines. That you know, he even though it's in the the modern, you know, it's set in the year it was made, and it's in major urban society and with real world things like yakuza. And all that. Yeah. It's not about, you know, sh- samurai and 
something from the folkloric past, it does feel like this guy is going on a on a sort of mythic journey in the way that you would get in, say, a fairy tale. Yeah. And that he is, you know, the idea that he would be, yeah, this sort of innocent, virginal, you know, maybe eternally youthful, those sorts of qualities that I feel like in fairy tales and folklore, you often get that kind of thing of like the orphan, mm. you know, the, I don't know, Cinderella, the things like, there's always, there's often that thing of like, this person doesn't have a connection to their their parents, their ancestry, their, yeah. their home, their, there's, there's that kind of thing. And so something about like Minami being, you know, his background being unclear, but the thought that, yeah, maybe he was say like a, a street kid who had no, yeah. no home and, and the Yakuza took him in, that feels like a modern version of something you would find in a folktale. Dude, totally. Yeah, the open freedom to move on a journey, you know, mm-hmm. throughout the, like, through the dangers of the journey. And, yeah. you know, like, and that's, that's, like, totally what this is. Um, yeah. And then you also get, like, the weird, I got, it was really cool. Like, I, I thought the same thing w- about the, the like, innkeepers, who are obviously very strange, <laughs> like, very strange. But I, they almost, like, were, there was this kingdom this strange hillbilly kingdom, you know, <laughs> of this town. Um, and these innkeepers were almost like sort of like like dark wizards or something that were yeah. uh, that were like enchanting or putting the town under a spell. Because mm. so the obviously the female innkeeper was just she was constantly lactating. <laughs> <laughs> Which, there's no there's no no getting around that there's no getting around it this is a critical part of the movie <laughs> is that the innkeeper is constantly lactating and also admiring minami's hog yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah there's like a he goes to take a bath and then she wants She's to like, watch oh you don't need to be ashamed of that yeah <laughs> See, yeah <laughs> yeah dude um but so then she, the, you find out later in the film that she's bottling all this milk and people around the town are drinking it. <laughs> you know, you see like scenes of people drinking it. And it's almost like this weird, like, what would you call it? Like food industry horror or like, or like, you know, <laughs> soil, I was going to say like Soylent Green type thing, you know, where these people are just, they buy a bottle from the market and they think it's just regular milk, but it's this like crazy innkeepers, you know, breast milk. Um, but then there's a there's this one scene where he finds out that his brother might have stayed at the inn. So he goes on this kind of like mystery of like seeking out his brother. And when he and it comes back to the inn and these innkeep these mysterious innkeepers are like, oh yes, he stayed upstairs. And there's there's like a whole no- he's like, there's a whole nother level. Like what? What? You know? Yeah. And they take him to go do this, but there's a plaque or something that they're reading from. And before they before they open the door, they do like this chant in front of it. They they say like, those who deliver milk are healthier than those who drink it. <laughs> that's like, they're slow. And I was like, wow, that's really weird because, so that basically says like, if you deliver the thing, you have the power or something. Mm-hmm. That it's it's almost like I the way that I got it was like an opiate for the masses kind of thing. But we we produce the the thing that keeps the the people sedated. There's almost. something about this, yeah, absolutely. And there's something that uh, it, I mean, it's been a long time since I've read Naked Lunch, but I watched mm-hmm. the 
the Cronenberg semi-adaptation. Oh, I've never actually seen Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Oh. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's its its, its own thing, because, like, how yeah. could you... Right. How could you adapt Naked Lunch? Um, right. But it was made when Burroughs was alive, and apparently Burroughs um, approved of it mm. and everything. But there's, there's a... It's still a Cronenberg movie, so it's super fucking weird in its own way, but they try to um, make it a little bit more of a single narrative for the purposes of the movie than you know, versus how the book is. But there's this running thing through it of like the, oh, I forget the phrase, it's like either the true black meat or the real black meat. Mm. That like, that's what the Burroughs analog uh, played by Robocop. How do, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Fucking Robocop. Yeah. You know, Robocop. Um, <laughs> so Robocop is looking for the true black meat <laughs> and eventually finds it. And it's, it's in a, this sort of, uh, I guess I'm not going to spoil Naked Lunch, the movie, but it's it has a horrifying, you know, it's not what you thought it was kind of reveal. Mm. That came to mind, I guess, because you already brought up Burroughs. And yeah. That's something about this woman's breast milk is like a, let's say, much more benign version of the the black meat mm. from yeah. uh, Naked Lunch, the movie. Yeah, it, it gave me the sense in Gozu that it was like casting a spell. yeah. And they did give undertones of that, like the the brother of the innkeeper was. <laughs> that's a hilarious scene because she's she sets it up like mysteriously, like you, oh you're looking for someone. My brother has a gift. My brother has the gift of like talking to spirits. Like he has some kind of divination or oracle type yeah, gift. He's, he's a psychic. He's a yeah, yeah, like a medium of some sort. And she, and he's Manami's like, well, of course, let's let's try it. I want to do this, you know? And she's like, okay. And she lights candles and she gets in the mood and gets everything going. And then she's like, gives Manami this chant. You must chant this to do this. And he's like, okay. Like he starts kind of chanting it. And then she just pulls out this fucking like, like BDSM whip. Like a riding crop. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what, that's what it is. And, and she just starts smacking the shit out of her brother. Who's like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> He's like, that hurts. Why are you doing that? And she's like, no, it's part of the process. You have to do, you have to do it. But so, but it is like, they've never done this before. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you don't know if she like just made that shit up or if they did have some kind of like, some kind of uh, of strange magic to them or something like that. that yeah, he, he, his role is to be like, what the fuck? We've ever done yeah. this before. Yeah, <laughs> and was she did? Uh, and that, actually, an interesting part of that scene was she keeps whipping her brother, and her brother and her brother's like, dude, fuck off! Like he and he runs out of the room, and she chases after him, you know, smacking the shit out of him. And Manami's like, kind of hidden in the corner, like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and then he kind of gets up, and when he gets up, all of a sudden, the like that two faced man, yeah, the dude, he had like a a, a, a pigmentation issue of, of some kind. But it's obviously just like white cake makeup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you see him picking at it. Yeah, and it flakes off like makeup. Yeah, revealing yeah. that he has totally normal skin underneath <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, right. But that dude just appears in the room, so it's almost kind of interesting. Like she. Like the weird ritual brought that dude in because yeah. Manami he wasn't in the room and Manami walked past almost like didn't expect him and then was like wait what are you doing here you know right and so yeah so there is is possibly just through the magic of 
filmmaking a cause and effect uh, of yeah. that ritual um, where this character just appears. I mean, there is something like one of the things I was thinking, um, you know, not that we have the strictest uh, remit here, like, oh, we only talk about this type of movie or that or mm. whatever it is, but we've, you know, we were mostly talking about horror movies and within that mostly talking about supernatural horror movies, mm. you know, not, not, um, human murderer movies or monster movies or things like that. And so when I was watching this at a few points, I was thinking like, huh, does this actually fit what we, what we're doing? <laughs> you know, is this a horror movie? Is this, is there anything supernatural here? Is And it's like, oh no, no, no there's plenty of supernatural stuff. Yeah. Um, namely the, the, the titular Gozu, who is a, mm cow-headed or ox-headed uh, spirit from Chinese Buddhism and also Japanese folklore. Yeah. Who appears yeah. and yeah. licks Minami all over. <laughs> and so things yeah. like that are much more, and there's a few other things that I'm sure we'll get to. And actually, yeah. Actually very obvious supernatural things yeah. going on. So Gozu is a good, is actually, it's, it's a, probably an important thing to talk about. <laughs> it is the name of the movie. Yeah, it is the name of the movie. But like, I wasn't aware this that is a legit like urban legend in Japan. Yeah. It's Where, it's two things. Well, it's it's several things, but but yeah, go on. Oh, okay. Um well, the way that I understand it having looked it up was like it's a type of story that is untellable because to actually speak the words would be to like doom yourself to death. That mm -hmm. it's such a scary story that if you actually hear the story, you die. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, and that, that in itself is, that's like, um, what would you call it? Like a verbal spell? Uh, yeah, like, like pretty, pretty classic. I mean, it, it immediately brings to mind things like, they actually seem slightly less extreme in that telling, but like Bloody Mary. Yeah. Or, or Candyman or, yeah. you know, those, those sorts of like teenage urban legend game things. Right. Like if you speak this, then you will die. Yeah, you know, dare you to try, dare you to do it, you know. Yeah, and that there's no way you can. I, I mean, yeah, I guess that's some of the idea is that that does feel like it's a an intensification of what a spell would already be. So you know, if you if you like like we brought it up before, but like you know, I can I can get you know the lesser key of Solomon off my shelf here, and this has all kinds of of stuff that I could use to evoke a demon in here. But just by opening the book and reading something, this is me reading. <laughs> I can't I'm confirm. Not doing, I'm not doing the spell now. I'm, I'm reviewing the spell. I'm looking, mm -hmm. I'm choosing the spell. I'm, you know, and you get the sense that you could, you know, by, okay, I'm going to evoke this demon. Which one am I going to do? This one. All right, what do I do? I do this. What do I say? Where do I say? You, know, you can go yeah. through all the planning stages and then say... You know, on second thought, not going to do it. Yeah. I don't actually want to get involved in this. Never mind, put the book back on the shelf and nothing will have happened. But the way you're, you're talking about the Gozu myth is that it's like, oh no, it's too late. You already know. Yeah. Like you already, you already read it. You already heard it. You already like, you know, it's, it's in you already. Yeah. Which totally has to do with Burroughs' word virus thing. Oh, right. That, uh, you know, there's, there's something inherently viral in language and that the written word is actually a means for, you know, spreading pathogens. Or yeah, like right. That. Once you, once you hear 
the words or once you take in the concept, you cannot like give it back. Sort of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which um, which is interesting because there's a, there's a lot of that in this movie where there t- it's sort of like approaching taboos uh, and fear of taboos. Obviously, like a lot of this movie touches on a lot of sexual taboos, like sexuality. And- yeah, all these kind of things, which are those kind of extreme acts that when approached cannot be taken back kind of thing. You know, maybe that plays into like the underlying theme of the movie or, or something mm-hmm. like that. I also yeah. was thinking that Gozu as a story that could not be told was perfect for this film as it's a story that's completely obscure. <laughs> right. You know, so maybe there cannot be a real clear plot line because it would kill the viewer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so he yeah. has to give these like zany, crazy, weird collage Tangential. type. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's the only way he could tell it without murdering the masses with a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually a good that's a good thought that it's somehow like a that it's almost like finding a loophole in it that it's like I can tell the story if I tell it in a certain way yeah. or out of order or things like that. One thing one one scene in the movie that you know feels very tangential and, and sort of silly and potentially frivolous but I'm going to I'm going to demonstrate how it's deeply relevant not frivolous <laughs> at all <laughs> uh based on what you've but you've said there, but that um, there's a part in Minami's quest around Nagoya where he he ends up at a he ends up having to talk to like a an American woman who mm-hmm. apparently lives yeah <laughs> lives in in town, and she's speaking like you get the sense of that she's speaking Japanese, but the the subtitles at least like on the DVD the subtitles are all um, of what she's saying are all hyphenated so that it, it looks like she is speaking like this like, yeah and as she talks you know he, he, uh minami oh have you seen ozaki this guy describes him or whatever and she's saying oh uh this and that and she's she's answering his questions but you start to notice we start to notice as the viewer and then minami starts to notice that she's like looking up <laughs> and out of like away from him sort of up into the corner and he comes and moves around to where she is and everything that she's saying is written on cue cards <laughs> that are like taped to the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and so she's it's she's just been reading out this uh this thing but so there's some you know I, and then I looked I looked up and and apparently that that actress is Russian and she uh-huh. doesn't didn't speak Japanese. <laughs> and so She was pretty good at it though. Oh yeah, she <laughs> I guess from, from an American perspective uh, of a dude who also doesn't speak Japanese yeah. like but I, I don't think I would sound that good if Yeah, I was right. Like, but yeah, that she um so apparently it was something where they were like, oh, you know, just well, we'll write out your lines phonetically, um, <laughs> and we'll put them out of frame. But then somewhere the decision got made, like actually, let's show the cue cards. Yeah. <laughs> but I bring that up yeah. to say not just to say that that's a really funny, cool moment in the movie, but that there's something in there like if we're if we're going back to spells, that makes me think about this question that comes up sometimes that. Uh, like, do you have to understand what you're saying in order for it to work? Mm. You know that uh, if we're talking about classic grimoire spells or something, you know, have this like, yeah. oh, this is in Latin or Greek or yeah. Aramaic or uh, Coptic or, you know, some some old language that you, the practitioner, you know, you don't speak Latin. So right. you're basically just making noises. And there's, the, 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 the consensus seems to be that, you know, 
no, there's an inherent power to words and it'll work yeah. uh, regardless of your intellectual comprehension. Yeah. But it does make me wonder in the case of this sort of what if the urban legend of Gozu is real, really will kill you. Nikkei knew that and made the movie in a certain way uh, to both tell the story and protect us. It's, it feels like that scene might be a little clue to part of the deal being that if you don't understand what you're saying, it won't hurt you. Yeah. That if you're telling the story, but you're reading it phonetically off of cue cards in a language you don't understand, that that might be a protection me- measure. Yeah. Yeah, you could you can sort of create a buffer or something. Yeah. Between the, the whatever the energy is that kills you, whatever that is. Um, yeah. Which is actually interesting. Like, what would be the thing that kills you? Is it the understanding of the story? Is the words itself in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, does the combination of words, like phonetics and just the gesture and movement of these words actually orchestrate some sort of uh, yeah. motion of fatality, you know? Um, it does. I mean, I guess the first question is like, is it is it to do with sound or is it to do with the word? in the abstract. Yeah. Cause and it seems like the way you're, you're telling this is that it doesn't matter. Like you could read the story and it would still curse you. Yeah. It, it's not just, cause I guess, yeah, that's, I don't have a, any kind of answer on how this, uh, extremely, uh, you know, we're just riffing here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it does seem like that would be the first question is like, is the power in the word or is the power in the sound? Yeah. Well, obviously, this brings to mind barbarous words and, and Mm -hmm. like, Western magic and stuff, where, uh, not just Western, I assume, you know, other cultures too, but whereas, like, barbarous words are essentially meaningless. They have no real definition. Yeah. They're just phonemes that were passed down that have a specific amount of energy associated with them. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They're recorded. They are specific words but they're meaningless words yeah yeah uh, or they're they're non-syntactical yeah there's, yeah i'm sure there's a proper linguistic way to say this but yeah you can't really trace in any sort of etymological uh history to these no they have no history the interesting thing about that like and i've kind of thought of these things like barbarous words are like these meaningless words that you would you would recite uh in in ritual or whatever what makes them powerful? I kind of thought maybe like the words themselves, the actual sounds are like an object. They're a sonic object. And so in some ways, because they get passed down, they're charged like a talisman of some sort. That you, They do have some sort of talismanic property that mm-hmm. simply speaking the sounds out puts you in touch with some kind of current of energy or something like that, you know. Or it brings something to life is what I'm thinking about, mm. that it's, it's it's a little bit like, I mean, I'm forgetting now exactly how this goes in movie because that's really what most of us are thinking about when we think about the story of the golem, mm. you know, but that, you know, the rabbi makes his clay man and then I think has to both write and speak the, the name mm. in order to make the, make the golem actually come to life. So produce a sonic and physical gesture simultaneously something like that yeah uh i'm pretty sure that's how it goes in the that it's not enough to i mean i know the golem has the um 
because it's Am- Amet is written on his forehead, which means, uh, I don't remember. I think that means life and that then the way the, the rabbi kills the, gra- the God, I was gonna, about to say gremlin. <laughs> <sighs> the way the rabbi disempowers the golem once he's run amok is by uh, erasing the Aleph mm. so that then it just becomes met, which means death. Mm. Yeah. This isn't about the golem. This is about Gozu. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, we got here through language. Yeah. And language being like a, well, story, because this movie is about a story, uh, a, a Gozu being a folktale that is a powerful enough energy that it can kill. And, yeah. and then having strange uh, symbols of language in the film itself. Yeah. I, the American, the American woman, which I, I love that scene, <laughs> like just because yeah. it's absolutely hilarious to me. It's it. I mean, it. I, I I don't know if this is like a scene that like would irritate people because it's just so clearly points out that it's the a, artifice. The the it's a film, you know, you know. Mm-hmm. But I loved that you can do that with filmmaking. Like that's kind of like that's a thing that you can use. The the whole. Anything that fits within the frame <laughs> is part of the film, you know? Right. Depending on how you want to frame it and how you want to collage it. And so the absurdity of this character, this character has never met this woman. And for some reason, she has all of all of the answers <laughs> written. I, I mean, I love that. It's just, there's no explanation for it because who wrote that down? Exactly. You know? How like, did he know what he was going to ask? Right. <laughs> And the answer is like a PA wrote it down. Yeah, yeah, the answer. And so then, but then it's it, it creates this hilarious train of thought because then you're like, well, the, yeah, the PA of the film actually knows the fate of this character. <laughs> you know, it gets intermingled. Or did if in the in the universe of this story, did like Men in Black kind of dudes come along <laughs> and just like pin this on their on their store? On the you know on the beam of their store, it's it's Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek from that Exiles episode, Jose <laughs> Chung from Outer Space, where they play the Men in Black who come come through and oh shit, oh yeah, <laughs> I don't remember that. I have to. I'm gonna go watch that like right away. <laughs> what you saw was the planet Venus. Is that that's my Jesse Ventura? <laughs> oh dude, nice. That's one of the best X Files. Is it hands hands down? Absolutely one of the best. Oh, it's shit. a Darren Morgan episode. The Darren Morgan episodes, especially the older I get, now that we live in fucking QAnon post truth nightmare, the X Files has lost a lot of its. Oh, that, uh, the serious X Files. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the sweet '90s quality that I loved back when it was on is kind of harder to take now. But my God, the Darren Morgan episodes are just solid fucking gold. <laughs> nice. They're just so good, and that's one of them. Um, if you've never seen the X Files before, <laughs> watch an episode called Jose Chung's from Outer Space, and uh, or if you have seen the X Files, go watch that. It has nothing to do with Gozu. <laughs> <laughs> What about food horror? <laughs> like the breast milk and well, well oh yeah, and, and, and Minami eats the yeah, like some soup that makes him almost immediately puke and yeah, all of the food, the way that it's presented is really adjacent to some unease. 
it, it like it really makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> like yeah. I, I would say, like this is not a movie I could eat food to. You know, I, I did eat. Oh, you did. <laughs> I, I ate a big bowl of popcorn while I was. Oh, nice, it. nice. But there were certain parts where it was like, ugh. Yeah, and it, it was to such a degree where I finished the movie and went to go eat dinner and had to actively try and stop Gozu thoughts from coming into my mind <laughs> because it was just, it made me really uncomfortable. Like food in this movie makes me really uncomfortable, which is like the food is actually all pretty good looking. I know there's, there's a shot he does a couple of times of zooming in like really, really close on a bowl of, of some kind of fried rice yeah. dish yeah, and it's done in such a way that it, you've, you're expecting there to be something like really fucked up in the rice. Yeah, like you know, like oh fuck, there's like an eye in the or like a <laughs> yeah. scorpions or you know, like th- there's going to be something explicitly monstrous in it, and there yeah. there isn't. But it just has this really clear tone that's like, dude, fuck that rice. <laughs> Like, well, then you find I don't want out anything to do with that rice. Well, you find out because he, like, the first time we see that rice, it was just breakfast. And he was like, What's up with that rice? He's like looking at it, like, there is some kind of connection to it. He doesn't know what it is. But then as he goes out through the town and he's seeking out his brother, he realizes that the brother, like, goes out to buy rice and sesame seeds and uh, Izuki beans or whatever. And then comes back to the inn and leaves. He basically leaves the inn without paying. So the innkeepers confiscate this rice and they make breakfast for the other dude, Minami, in the morning. And that's the rice. So that rice came from his the missing, the missing yeah. brother, which is like strange that he could like almost detect the presence of his brother in the rice. Right. But otherwise, it's just a perfectly normal cup of rice. <laughs> right. There's nothing, nothing to it. Really, the shot of the rice, because um, I think it's the same way the the couple times that it's shown. But like a lot of the uh, just the way that this movie shot feels really feels a lot like a comic. Mm. Yeah, and some of this I know. Like I did read, I watched the sort of making of behind the scenes thing that came with came on the DVD that I rented. And that was mostly like, oh, they're just goofing around and stuff like that. But I did read one interview with with Takashi Miike from the time um, where he was asked, you know, general beginning of interview questions. You know, what are your what are your influences, that kind of thing. And he said, um, you know, oh, for everybody of my generation, I think Miike is like 70. Um, but so for everybody of my generation, you know, it was it was all the, the manga from when we were young. Mm. And... So based on that, not not my own deep knowledge of manga or anything like that, but I do feel like, oh yeah, I could see Gozu as a comic. Yeah. Really clearly. You know, if I found out that Gozu had been based on a manga, I would be like, oh, that explains it. Yes. That's exactly how this mm. looks. Yeah, like um like like is that like a serial or like chapters that would come out, you know? Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Like Oh, it's it's the quest. It's like Minami's looking for Mizaki. Yeah. Like, find out what happens in the next episode. Yeah, and then it's just another really weird scene. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. That would be kind of amazing. I wish that existed. Should, we could go through the like a TV series of like. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, if that Uzumaki Adult Swim 
anime is actually happening. I haven't heard anything about that in a oh, while. But. Oh, Uzumaki. Uh, because I saw the the like Junji Ito like short stories one. The Tales of the Macabre yeah. like, Netflix thing. Yeah. Apparently for the last couple of years, Adult Swim have been working like with with Junji Ito's approval on making a like limited series adaptation of Uzumaki. Mm. That's uh from what I've seen, it would be all black and white. Um because there was a live-action pseudo-adaptation of Uzumaki made kind of around when it came out. Uh, that's huh. one of the most disappointing, completely worthless things. Oh, because I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah, don't, it, don't seek that out. Um, we're talking about a horror manga here. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, apparently Adult Swim has been making that for the last couple of years, and I haven't heard anything about it lately, but... But yeah, so fuck, I never thought that would happen. So I guess if that's happening, maybe somebody could convince Adult Swim to make a, a like anime <laughs> series of Kozu. That would be kind of sick, yeah. Or or uh, like a manga, an actual drawn-out comic. Yeah, that would, would be, be also, cool, too. It would also be interesting, yeah. Maybe Junji Ito wants to do it. <laughs> this does Junji, kinda... I know you listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I wonder if there is crossover between their worlds... Like if they've ever come, because they do have similar styles, right? Junji Ito is a horror and he has this particular type of like horror that is like body horror. And also does a similar thing of like extreme horror, but also comedy and goofiness. Yeah. I don't know if they're just like cut from the same cloth being from, you know, a similar time period and culture maybe. Or maybe they've met or... Yeah, maybe they have met. I don't know uh, if they. All I know is I've seen those pictures of of Junji Ito and and Hideo Kojima. Oh, really? And that that was one where it was like, oh, of course they're friends. <laughs> yeah. So I guess if they're friends, then maybe Tak maybe Takashi Miike comes and hangs yeah. out too. But to, he did a he did a TV series based on a manga, uh, the one where the killer like pan like plants flower seeds in people's brains. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've got, I, I don't know do the name. I not know what you're talking about. It's pretty gruesome. Like the dude plants flowers in their brains and when the flowers grow, it like overtakes their brain and kills them. And that's how the dude, if I, if I get this correct, wow. I, haven't, I haven't fully read it, but there was a TV series that Takeshi Miike did and it's a manga. It's based on a manga. Oh, wow. That's in kind of the same, yeah, kind of a similar Japanese horror, body horror style. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That sounds cool. Yeah. Um, one of the things, just just while we're while we're talking about Gozu, so because uh, I think I said this, however long ago, that like there are several things Gozu is one like in in the real world. Like if you go look up what's Gozu, you're like, well, it's a 2003 movie by Takashi Miike. It's a Japanese urban legend, you know, uh, Bloody Mary Candyman type thing. But then there is also a minor Shinto deity called Gozu Tenno. Mm who is uh, sort of a, one of those like dual aspect gods who is both like a protector and a disease bringer, you know? So he's yeah. a little bit like, like Pazuzu, mm. where it's like Pazuzu is contagion, but also protection from the contagion. Oh. A little bit of like an antibody type uh, vaccination type <laughs> way of thinking about That's interesting, yeah. A spirit. But Gozu, and that is, uh, he's, he's represented, Gozu Tenno is represented as... Um, just kind of like a pissed off looking guy. And apparently Gozu Tenno means something like ox, ox neck or neck like an ox, something along those lines. Because then that name and some part of this concept comes from 
a pre-existing thing that came out of China, or sorry, came to Japan from China and to China from uh, some branch that I've forgotten of uh, Indian Buddhism, which is these two figures called, in I don't remember their names in either Sanskrit or Chinese, um, so sorry to all the Sanskrit speakers out there. But um, their names in Japanese are Gozu and Mezu, and they are Oxhead and Horsehead. And they're two fearsome supernatural beings that guard the entrance to hell and are specifically charged with rounding up uh, escaped souls. Anybody who tries to get out, oh, I I snuck out of hell, but then Gozu and Mezu are going to come find you and drag you back to hell. And so that, that came out of some branch of Indian Buddhism, went to China, uh, became a they they started to show up there in in um you know uh, traditional Chinese folklore and then from there to Japan. So when Gozu the the I guess character when the spirit Gozu shows up in the movie Gozu, it is a guy with an oversized ox's head and some tidy whities and gym socks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he looks sweaty and. <laughs> kind of scrawny and yeah not quite the fearsome demonic being dragging you to hell but no he's still still pretty freaky yeah he's got like the man bod kind of or dad bod thing going on <laughs> this weird mixture of like i can't tell yeah is that just like a skinny middle-aged man or like a 13 year old <laughs> you know <laughs> but when you imagine like this this scare because there's a I, I thought immediately, you know, with this this Gozu that guard the gates to hell and keep the souls from escaping made me think, of course, of, of you know, the Minotaur. But specifically, yeah. the Minotaur's appearance in Dante's Inferno, which is one of the things that, I don't know why, really, but it just, since I first read the Inferno when I was a teenager, the fact that the Minotaur is in it has always been like, huh, yeah, that's weird. Why is the Minotaur in there? But that he is, you know, has a similar thing of the Minotaur in the Inferno not uh, being a kind of gatekeeper and not letting spirits. I think he guards the seventh circle. Okay. But, you know, not letting any of the damned in that specific circle of hell, you know, pass by his gates. So he serves like a similar purpose. Yeah, I thought that that was an interesting, like, oh, so you... There's these two completely different things. Both have a, a ox or bull-headed yeah. gatekeeping hell spirit. Mm, yeah, as if it's like an archetypal symbol that... Yeah. Yeah. It does feel like there's something there that's coming from somewhere other than just uh, the mundane. But the, also, the Shinto spirit that you brought up, the, what was it, like the Gozu Tenum? Gozu Tenno. Tenno. Okay, Gozu Tenno, who brings both like... Uh, good and bad fortune or whatever, the, yeah. like the double-sided, that reminds me of language again, as in that words can both heal and harm concepts. Yeah. Concepts can endanger you, but they can also enlighten and empower you, you know? Well, it's also a bit of that thing of, you know, that, that people will talk about. Um, I feel like this comes up, uh, I don't know offhand where this maybe first entered into the the literature, but, you know, you'll hear this idea sometimes like, that magic, and so then, you know, by extension, think spells, since we've brought up spells, that that 
you know, magic is just a technology. There's no such thing as good and bad magic. There's only good and bad magicians. Mm. You know, it's not the magic that is doing the dark thing. It's just making a thing happen. You're the one steering it in the dark direction. And that idea is brought up sometimes, you know, as but there's a similar thing about, say, technology, that uh, technology is neither good nor bad. It's put to good or bad ends. And so I guess along those lines, yeah, that's sort of, if we're going with this urban legend, curse, Burroughs word virus, divine language, like all these things have in common the sense that uh, the language just, the language has this power and the power is neither good nor bad or it is both good and bad either way. But yeah, that like if you've been cursed by a spell, the curse can also be broken by a spell. If you've been destroyed by words, you can also be healed by words. Mm. And that does seem like that's there in uh, Gozu Tenno. Yeah, yeah. I am somewhat high. Oh, are you? (laughs) (laughs) By the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. I... It was that that pause was hilarious. <laughs> I think I'm gonna leave that in. I am somewhat high. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, because I had this. I had this drink. Oh, did you drink? Is that that's like a cannabis drink? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's pretty light, and I drink them a lot, so it's not like uh, you know too intense or anything. <laughs> but it was just funny. Where like. Um, Maybe five minutes ago, it was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that drink kicked in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, I did have a, from that one interview with Mike that I read, I did have one little part of it that I excerpted because I thought that this was, it's both just a sentiment I like as a general thing, but also feels like in a behind the scenes way, it sort of accounts for the, well, maybe not accounts for, but it's it's a, a way of looking at the, the strangeness and sort of tangential, elliptical, whatever qualities of Gozu. But the, the this, this comes from an interview right after Gozu came out in um, IndieWire. And the, it's, it's like half a review and half an interview. And the, the review is really, they're like not into it. They're like, this movie, this movie basically sucks. They're like, it has some moments, but like, you know, dude's dude's losing it. It's not as good or whatever. And then the interview, I don't know if they're just being like totally two-faced or if the interview maybe was done by a different person. But the interview is doesn't say anything like, hey, so your movie's bad. Yeah. It's a totally like, oh, so what were your influences? I'm one, you know, there's always that question of like, <laughs> did you tell him you you were gonna give it a bad review? And <laughs> yeah. or or not. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I did not write down what the question was, but his one of the things he said in that interview is, uh, and this is quoting now, filmmaking is not a balancing act, although some directors think it is. I don't believe in it. I like ups and downs. They're the best way to translate my feelings to the screen. Hmm. Yeah, how would you interpret the ups and downs that he's talking about? I guess there's a couple of ways, like, I don't think, this. the first one I, I don't think he's talking about, but is, you know, that could be a way of, of looking at like a, a filmmaker's filmography and seeing, oh, oh, this one was good, this one was bad, this one was kind of mediocre or whatever. And then you'd be saying, well, yeah, but that's whatever the picture of a oh. well-rounded career is. Yeah. You've got the the good ones, the bad ones, the underrated ones, the overrated ones, and like that makes a full picture. And, you know, that's the way yeah. it is. Um, but I think, you know, he does mean within a movie. Yeah, so I was... I was thinking within a movie, but 
he does have a huge amount of ups and downs. Like he did, like he was a, he is a proper filmmaker in that he's not just making these few select like massive pieces of art. He's making all kinds of stuff. I mean, his filmography is huge and he, he like, he's just like, Oh yeah, I'll be making all of this TV stuff or I'm making all of these direct to video things. So he, I think he expected this to be a direct to video movie. Right. I think I did read that, that, that that's, that's correct. This was supposed to be direct to video. And then somebody saw a cut and was like, Oh no, no, no. we got to do a real release. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I also read too, like the, the budget just either got cut right away or it was like, he, he didn't have a real budget. So I mean, that's like talking about the ups and downs in the film. He's like, all right, let's, we have no money. <laughs> let's just make, I don't, let's just have fun with it. Or let's just make something absurd. Like, I, I, I like that because he was just, I assume, I don't know what his intention was, but I assume that he was just like, let's just fucking keep going and go for it, you know? Well, to the, to the point that uh, in there that, that Mike, you know, makes lots of things and lots of very different things. At the, I just looked back to this, the IndieWire interview that I just quoted. And um, the, the final question in the interview is, what projects do you have right now? Hobgoblins and the Great Wall. That's an exact <laughs> translation. It's a story about a person who teams up with the Hobgoblins to save the planet, to create a big wall of human beings and Hobgoblins against evil. <laughs> Dude. Oh my God. Yeah, there was like, and that sounds insane to me, but I, I, I kind really of want to see that. I do want to see that. I want to see that too. Yeah. No, but it is interesting that, you know, he's, he's this guy who's known to, you know, whatever nerdy white men for like five movies. Yeah. Five, six, seven, maybe a handful of things that made it over here 20 years ago that, you know, made a really big impression on people like us, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when you look at the dude's IMDb page, you're like, oh my God, there is so much more stuff. And it's like episodes of sitcoms. Yeah. It's like commercials. It's, you know, family movie, action movie, massively gory art horror movie. Yeah. You know, romantic comedy. Like, Yeah. And like family friendly movies and stuff. Yeah. And it, <laughs> I, I don't remember where exactly, but I know years ago reading something where he was like, you have to treat each project as its own thing and meet it where it's at or where it's coming from or whatever the phrasing would be. But yeah. that, you know, no, if I'm making a, a creepy, weird horror thing that's my own passion or I'm doing a family movie, like either way, this is the job I've signed up for and I'm going to give it my all and I'm going yeah. to take every project I, I take on seriously. And I thought like, I really like that. I like, I, that feels like that's, that's, very contrary to the idea of an auteur filmmaker that yeah. people who, you know, that, that, that those nerdy white kids like us yeah. 20 years ago who got enchanted by this kind of stuff, so much of that enchantment has to do with the auteur and this idea that, like, no, yeah. this is a highly driven individualistic artist who only makes what they're passionate about. Yeah. And I like the idea that Mike is somehow like, oh, yeah, no, he does that stuff. And then he also makes Hobgoblins save the world or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, I, I I picture him to be like almost like 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 definitely like a craftsman, you know, like in his workshop. And it's like, well, what do we got today? It's like, oh, we're making a cabinet for so and so. And he's like, all right, let's do it, you know. 
And he's like, what do we have? Oh, you have this extra money. You can get creative. And he's like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know? And then he's like, and I think some of that like direct to video stuff is probably super beneficial because it's low stakes, low money, low stakes. And it's like, it probably doesn't have the same rating systems. Is like probably not. No, so you can get crazy. You can just do crazy stuff, you know. So uh, it probably gives you the freedom to be like, well, let's try this. Let's do this. Let's try this. And then it, he just gets better at that, even probably in with like bigger name when he's got a bigger budget or a, a, a more high class film that he has to be making. He probably still has the like, well. Let's do this. Let's try this. You know, he, uh, yeah, it's supported by his experiments in the direct video stuff. I mean, it is it is something like the yeah hyping up the direct video thing is is totally in line with our you know modern rubbish thing. This is sort of the maybe not elevation, but that you know we're we're in the trash bin here, guys. Like that's where we <laughs> that's where we belong. Yeah, <laughs> we, we threw our lives in the trash years ago and. <laughs> And here we are. We're the hobgoblins. Um, <laughs> Just building our small wall. Building our wall to save <laughs> the planet. Um, no, but that, you know, there is something about, uh, there's really something very like beneficial, I think, to horror, if we're calling Gozu horror, you know, close enough, I guess, but to this sort of strange movie zone that you get in direct-to-video, or I guess sometimes you get it now in like direct-to-streaming, even though that's not quite the same but um you know i don't say this in any kind of like like hipstery you know oh stuff's better the fewer people know about it or you know mainstream stuff so like that that's not what i'm doing here but i do think that there is something to horror and and strangeness existing at a direct-to-video level of culture that is kind of where it belongs. Mm. And I, I don't say that, like, this is definitely low culture, but I don't say that, I don't like saying that because I don't like the low, the low high thing, but the low high thing exists. Yeah. I don't like it, but it is a way that things are, are divided. And so within that division, I think horror will always be low culture and attempts to make it either high culture or big budget mainstream that you you lose something yeah you know that the um i mean there are there are some uh you know just outright hollywood horror movies that i love but i do think there's something it, it's at its best when it's like here's half a million dollars get your friends and local film students together and yeah. uh go out into the suburb behind your mom's house and make a movie yeah absolutely it's it's like um that embraces like what the human like what humans can do yeah of course you can make a high budget film that looks beautiful if you got if you have like 30 million dollars or whatever the hell <laughs> you know like of course you can but when you have like five hundred thousand dollars and you have to like you have to do something then the the pure beauty of like ingenuity comes out and it's like, Oh, let's, how can we do this? How do we do it? You know? And then yeah, you find yeah. your creative solutions to problems that a bigger budget would say, Oh, we, you know, yeah, the graphics department will, will get that. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Like, right. We don't have a graphics department. No. We have to figure out how to do this right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that includes like that, like all hands are on deck all the time, mm -hmm. I assume. 
like people are fulfilling multiple roles and that j- it just seems kind of cool. I, there's something cool about that. I like that. It does seem like it would be, you know, I, I've had a small amount of experience working on, uh, on sets and uh, I hate it, mm. um, but it does seem like it would be the greatest potential for it to be fun would probably be making a movie like Gozu. Oh. Making a movie on yeah. a Gozu level with people yeah. who have a good attitude, like Mike seems to, and yeah, I, I've never, I've never been on a set. I might actually, I think I might actually enjoy that kind of stuff. I like, I, I like have specific reasons. Oh, for okay, it, yeah, the way I, yeah, know, which are not about anybody, uh, anybody else. <laughs> yeah, have a great time. Yeah, but. Uh, I was gonna say too. I literally just read an introduction to. I was, I picked up uh, William Gibson's Burning Chrome again, the short stories. Uh, and I was just like, I'm going to read through a couple of these while I have some time to kill. And so I read the foreword by Bruce Sterling. And it was interesting because he, he, he literally just said, like, sci-fi writers have this, this beautiful spot that they, they can be in because nobody takes them seriously. <laughs> like, yeah. because it's like this pulpy sort of not so serious part of culture, they have complete freedom to experiment and do whatever they want and including like pushing the boundaries and speaking like real definite truths about like what humans are doing about our future and about like things, things that are super pertinent, but they can do it all under the radar with very little, uh, uh, like, uh, what's the word? Like oversight. Yeah. Like very little danger of being criticized, you know? Yeah, because you can sort of always, well, what? I'm a guy writing about yeah. computers and yeah. aliens and yeah. nanotech and right, know. right. Uh, and until that stuff becomes totally clear, and then people are like, "Wow, look at look at how prophetic this story was," you know. But like, yeah, and then now you have William Gibson being like, "Seriously, please stop making my stuff come true." <laughs> Like, please stop doing that. I did not want any of this to happen, and all of it seems to be happening. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's crazy, but like, I uh, like horror has a similar thing because horror is is like just this strange genre that's kind of like pushing your senses. It's kind of the sensual genre that, like, you know, either you're doing it to scare you scare you in your physical body or to scare you in your mental, you know, your mental body. Like it's just kind of playing with your senses, but in, in high art or whatever, horror is not really considered, you know, top, top shelf. (laughs) And because of that, it can fly under the radar and it has free, free reign like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it, it feels to me like one of the things that I'm, that I'm thinking about with exactly why, being in a much, you know, in a micro-budget direct-to-video type tier is beneficial is, and this would apply to other genres, but yeah, keeping it to horror is that like, so if, if part of the, the function of making horror, of making a horror movie, writing a horror story, whatever, of course, part of the function of it is going to be to make you feel horrified, you know, is mm-hmm. to make the reader feel scared or uh, a sense of dread or, Various qualities that are all bundled under feelings of horror and terror and unquiet and all that kind of stuff. I think I've said the word unquiet in every episode. <laughs> Have you? keeping track at home. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Spot all the instances where why it says unquiet. Oh, dude. Email us those time codes and you'll get a prize. It is. It's like a code. 
Yeah, it's <laughs> the our, time. Um, <laughs> the modern rubbish sweepstakes. You win a <laughs> a weekend with Dave. When it like, I I just went on a road trip with my brother, and he was like, "Dude, I want to listen to your podcast." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to listen to myself talking. Okay. But it was the first episode, and it was hilarious because the first episode you. You could tell that I was like a little bit nervous, and I had a total crutch word. Oh, that I, I I was just kept saying seeming. I just kept saying seemingly. <laughs> oh. It's seemingly, seemingly, and I was like, dude, I could turn this into a drinking game every time I hear myself saying that fucking word again. <laughs> you know, like, I, but I, but it was hilarious. It is hilarious to listen to yourself when you're like to hear your own voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. We're breaking yeah, the we're breaking the fourth wall here, like the like, <laughs> like the movie, did. like the scene in Gozu. <laughs> exactly. This is all artificial, and yeah, it's all planned. Yeah. Um, okay, let me see if I can find my way back to where I was. Which find my way back, just like Ariadne's thread in the fucking labyrinth with the Minotaur, bro. It's all connected. <laughs> I am high now. It's all connected. <laughs> the other one from that I realized from listening to my own voice is that sometimes I laugh like Dr. Hibbert from The Simpsons. <laughs> I don't always do it, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I sound like Dr. Hibbert. <laughs> Slightly higher pitch, Dr. Hibbert. <laughs> Oh, um, okay. Oh, dude, someone, oh. someone said, no, sorry, we're just off the rails here. Someone said, I, I laugh like Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's our, since, since nobody knows what we look like, yeah. uh, make, that, that's our image. You're Ray Liotta from Goodfellas, and I'm Dr. Hibbert. That's all our listeners should be picturing those two hanging out on Zoom. And that's what's happening right now. <laughs> um okay where was i i was saying something about uh okay yeah so one of the points of of horror of course is to elicit a feeling of horror different writers have this you know take that to a that's not always the central thing going on in a horror story sometimes it's more about allegorical themes or this or that but you know it's it's kind of hard to call something a horror story if it's not horrifying yeah so that's what i was struggling to say and now that i've said that not everybody finds the same stuff horrifying um what you what you are scared of what you are creeped out by what you're grossed out by um is pretty personal it's at least as personal as like what you find erotic or, or yeah. things like that. And you know, we can we can make some broad generalizations like uh probably everybody would find, you know, uh, a really gross zombie like gurgling and rushing at you. Like probably everybody's like, yeah, whoa, that's that's fucked up. Just like probably every straight uh man and lesbian would be like, nice boobs. Those are erotic. <laughs> you know, but that's... So you, you can have certain really general things. Yeah. Like, yeah, all right. You know, you want to... What's erotic? Boobs. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. That probably works. What's scary? I don't know, a fucking dead body. Yeah. Yeah, sure, that's scary. But as far as, like, getting into the deeper levels, it's like, 
okay, but we all have our own little thing that's that's our our particular nightmare, our particular ghoul, our particular sense of dread, you know, that that uh sometimes it feels to me when you when you get like a bigger budget, you know, what we'll, we'll just call a Hollywood horror movie that like many things that happen on the kind of Hollywood level of of all of this stuff, you feel like there's some focus grouping. Mm going on either literal focus grouping in the sense of like test audiences but uh or or even just like a more figurative focus grouping going on in the head of the writer who is saying to themselves I want to write a successful horror movie what have been the most successful horror movies of the last 10 years oh it's this and this and this okay how can i incorporate the successful elements of those movies into my own thing so that i too will have a successful horror movie yeah when in contrast to that, when you're working on micro budget direct to tape in the Japanese industry, when you're working on that tier, it does feel like you can say, no, 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 my thing is a fucking incest onsen with a ox headed folk demon and a guy who's searching for his brother. And then his brother turns into a hot lady and then he has sex with the hot lady. Yeah. And then his brother comes out of the hot lady. And the hot lady desiccates and starts to dry up, but then they put her in the bathtub and everything is fine and the three of them live happily ever after. I want to make that. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, that was never going to be a Hollywood movie. That was yeah. never going to be the yeah. plot of a Stephen King novel. That was never going to be yeah. your mainstream thing. And it's not saying that, you know, being outside the mainstream is good for, you know, ooh, I'm so obscure reasons, but just because... That's where you get the personal stuff. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and this this film has that, like... Obviously, the commentary on sexuality was pretty... Oh, yeah. Pretty, like, straight up. So there was, uh, like, a sexual repression of some sort or another. Like, this dude is a virgin, but he's, like, he's like a grown man. But he's a Clearly virgin. Clearly, at least in his mid-20s. Yeah. If not mid-30s, right. even. I'm not right. really sure, but yeah. So you don't know what his relationship to sexuality is, you know, and he seems to be struggling with it. And a lot of it does seem to be directed towards this other dude, like his... Towards Ozaki, yeah. Ozaki, his superior. Um, so the sexuality is is kind of interesting because it's like, is, is he struggling because he can't come to terms with like homosexuality? That is, is it like a taboo and mm -hmm. that he can't come to terms with? Is it because he has such um like a he holds Ozaki in such a high regard that it's not even a homosexual thing it's actually just like a, a thing of like reverence for this mm. this higher being because he saved his life kind of thing it's like mm. a chival like a uh what is it it's like courtly love mm yeah you know, like like uh, the aspect of chivalry of a, yeah. of a knight and his his unrequited love for the lady. That, yeah, you know, is pure but ever burning, and which yeah. is which is kind of interesting because when the final sex scene does come up and he finally has sex and she's like, "Wow, look at that hog!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, but but then they finally they finally have sex. It's actually it's like kind of sensual in a like a dark way, but it's also kind of like loving. Mm -hmm. Like it, it felt kind of genuine to me. It mm -hmm. was like, oh, like of course this is the person. My dog is like dreaming and making noises. 
<laughs> yeah, you could hear him like barking in the background. Uh, uh, but of course, he's like, he he's comfortable. He finally got comfortable expressing himself um, and then, you know, embracing this. And it was like this really beautiful moment for like, for a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until, then- until it's like, what was it? The vagina dentata? Yeah, but with a hand where he can't pull out because something, something's keeping him in there, and then it gets super horrific. You know, I think I Uh, need to just explain this scene for people. So (laughs) yeah, okay, okay. So uh, Minami goes on. You know, he's he's on this quest all around Nagoya, looking for Ozaki, not finding him, getting into various situations. Finally makes it to the, the body dump spot and the guys say, oh yeah, no, we we crushed him. You know, we 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 had the body, we crushed him. He's, his goo is in this jar over here. And uh, and we, we took his skin off before we crushed him and we put it in like a dry cleaner rack with all the other Yakuza guys who we have skinned and killed. And so now they're highly tattooed bodies and fully articulated hogs <laughs> are preserved like suits in dry cleaner bags. Well, he actually, and that scene, the guy who like, he's like, oh, here he is and pulls out his skin and hangs it on a separate act to demonstrate. He turns it around where the hog is visible, points at the hog and goes, this is your brother. <laughs> this is your brother. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's, it's so good. So, so Minami... How, you know, you, okay, fine, there's my verification. Ozaki's dead, I can go back to Tokyo. Nobody's gonna, you know, nobody's gonna kill me for fucking the job up. So he goes out in the parking lot and then sitting in his car is this woman who's like, you're back, finally. I've been waiting for you. And he's like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Ozaki. Like, no, you're not. Yeah, I am. And, you know, do the whole prove you're Ozaki. And he, he's, and the, the woman says the exact thing that Ozaki said about Minami's spectacular Frankenstein hog. <laughs> you know, um, that, uh, you know, says, oh, well, I remember, remember when I said that to you? And, oh, my God, no one else knew you ever said that about my, my hog. <laughs> um, it must be you. So then he takes her back to Tokyo and she comes with him to the meeting where he goes to tell the Yakuza boss, you know, the job's done. The boss takes a liking to this this woman who introduces herself to him as the daughter of some former business associate. The Yakuza boss takes her back to his place to have his way with her. He then Minami breaks in. No, I won't let you, I won't let you do it. You know, that's my brother as a woman after I killed him. Like, whatever, but but she's mine. And ends up impaling, accidentally impaling the Yakuza boss on the ladle, which has been on his butt <laughs> for the sex act. Yeah. Um, he splatters cum all over the floor. <laughs> Is that what it was? I was trying to dis- decipher oh, yeah. what it was. It was just like, straight up cum, yeah. I'm going to quote the show. You ever watched that show, Dave? <laughs> oh, no, I haven't seen um, I thought you were going to quote that S- South Park episode. No, well, there's, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, no, the, the FX series, Dave, about I haven't like, seen the that, no. white rapper. It's actually yeah. really funny. There's oh, okay. qualities to it that are, it's a bit like Entourage, which is unfortunate, oh. but, it, but it is very funny. There's a part where, where he's, um, he just uses the phrase, like, like pissing cum. <laughs> 
that that's what happens as the Yakuza <laughs> boss <laughs> dies. <laughs> um, just a totally comical like yogurt splatter. Oh god, yeah. And then and then him like gooning at the camera, making these like like Looney Tunes type faces of like, yeah. I'm dying because of the ladle of my butt. <laughs> and okay, so that happens. And then Minami is is like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll I'll get you out of here, brother, lady, person. And they go back to his place and she's like, I want you to have sex with me. He's like, I want to do it. And so they start doing it. You know, it's uh, oh yeah, you know, look at that hog, that that whole kind of thing. And then he notices, like, oh, wait, something, something's grabbing me. What's going on? What are you doing? Like, I'm not doing it. What is that? And he, you know, he tries to pull away from her and can't. And the further and further he pulls, eventually he starts to pull out an entire adult man forearm that's grabbed <laughs> onto his og. He pulls it a ways out of her. Well, she doesn't seem to be horrified by this. No, yeah. Um, she seems to be pretty much just rolling with it. Uh, they, they eventually, they, they get separated. You know, the, this horrifying birthed hand uh, pulls itself back into the woman and then Ozaki comes headfirst out of her uh, as as the same man, you know, as a 50-year-old man or whatever. Which, by the way, the special effects for that are awesome. They're actually, I was wondering, I, like... I don't know how, how they did, they did it. do this? Yeah, and this was in 2003, too. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they did it because it looks awesome <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, yeah it's real gross yeah and uh and also like psychologically fucked but um <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh it looks it's very convincing <laughs> um so eventually you know so she so basically girl ozaki births like rebirths boy ozaki but that then she has the process of doing that has like dried her out to where she's like all dried up like a sort of mummy and you see her like oh i'm all dry and that then it cuts to an establishing shot of the tokyo skyline and a voiceover i think is manami saying you know we put the girl in the bathtub and everything <laughs> went back to normal and then it cuts and she's just like in the bathtub like soaping herself like having a great time yeah she's just like oh night <laughs> what a nice bath yeah Brushing her teeth. It, exactly, <laughs> so, yeah, she's yeah. brushing her teeth, and then she puts her toothbrush in the cup. You see that there's three toothbrushes, and then she, Minami, and Ozaki walk out down the street, like, arm in arm. Yeah. And like, that's the end of the movie. It's almost like, like, uh, like, friends. Like a happy, it's like the happiest ending. It is. It's like, <laughs> they're all together. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah. <laughs> And I remember seeing this like the the first time I saw this movie, just loving that it was like, so this horrifying thing happens, this thing that could be, you know, would be Freud's fucking dream art to talk about. You know, oh, so your 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 adoptive brother, partner in crime who you killed gets birthed out of the girl who's him. Like it's just perfect psychosexual nonsense. Um this thing happens and then there's like yeah, she took a bath and she was great. We're just all <laughs> hanging now. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. nobody needs to address what just happened. Right. There's like no consequences. 
There's yeah. nothing is learned. There is no moral. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, yeah, that all happened. And dude, I also love at the end when they get together, sh- one of them is like holding like a convenience store bag. Mm-hmm. And that's it. <laughs> like they went yeah. to the convenience store. Like, yeah, they're just going shopping. You feel, you feel that's all like, yeah. so, so these guys aren't in the Yakuza anymore. No, it's like, let's go grab some milk. Oh, yeah, no, I'll, no. I'll, I'll come too. Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But that, that's, I, I, the sex scene being this like starting from intimacy and being like kind of heartfelt and then getting horrific mm-hmm. and then just going, oh, no, super lighthearted. Yeah. <laughs> All within yeah. the span of like 10 minutes or so. That feels it, like that's, a, that must be, or at least that is a perfect example, I think, of what became meant by like the ups and downs. Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel like Within, that must no. be it. Yeah. That's totally, totally. Yeah. Like, like, um, like the, the drastic tonal shifts and yeah. What, what is that painting? Like Chiarosco? Is that, I can't, I don't know. Chiaroscuro? Yeah. Chiaroscuro. I can't never pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like super bright highlights and then just black, dark shadows. And shadows. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's what yeah. it kind of feels like with this extreme extreme polar like swaps of of sensation yeah yeah i mean one thing i was thinking about too uh you know is that they're i don't know anything about the these two being i mean they must be aware of each other but i don't know anything about any kind of actual influence i'm not suggesting that there is an actual influence or anything but there is a feeling that this is a little bit like Nikkei's vision of Nagoya and stuff like that feels like, oh, is this Japanese Twin Peaks? Yeah, I definitely got a ton of like Lynchian kind of absolutely. Stuff from it. But yeah. I thought too, if that's true, which you know may be kind of lame to just try to re- relate everything back to Twin Peaks. Whatever, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. I don't really care one way or the other. But uh, if we're going with that, I feel like this makes Lynch's world look real fucking normal. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Dude, yeah. Lynch's world, you know, his whole thing of like, oh, it's this sort sort of surreal dream verging into nightmare version of 1950s America or something is like, yeah, no, this makes it look like it's just 1950s America. Yeah. Like Mike's dream world makes Lynch's look like it's actually just the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Lynch Lynch gets into horror s- but he doesn't get into this like straight up like ex- the ex- he doesn't go to the extremes. No. Well, yeah. although there are some things like the 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 corpse reveal in Mulholland Drive when they're going into the little bungalow always really fucked me. Oh up. yeah. And the the man behind the Denny's the, in yeah, Mulholland Drive, the dumpster guy. That one that was terrifying. Yeah. Some of the um, stuff in in I mean, there's Lynch is is really good at horror. Dude, yeah, that's um, true. There's a Lynch short film that Sam showed me one time. And it was like a series of people made these films with these like certain type of camera or something. Mm. And Lynch's film had like this like woman in a vat and these like weird, crazy people. Like it was horrifying. It was like yeah. such a horrifying image, you know, but yeah. so effective. So yeah, no, you're right. Lynch, Lynch can totally pull that stuff off. Yeah, I think I, I I I don't mean that this doesn't make you know Lynch's thing look like the Andy Griffith show. That's the blustery no. bullshit 
thing that a guy who has a podcast says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I still do think this is, you know, yeah, it has a little bit of lynchiness, but it is its own unique Mike world. Yeah. Oh, totally. Uh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you can, yeah, you can always tell. And then that's another thing that I like about it. Him being a craftsman, you can, you can feel his, his mind at play. You can feel his decision making and everything, the quality and, and of of choices and what's being presented to the viewer mm-hmm. is definitely comes from like a genuine voice of him. Yeah, you know, I think there's something in in this thought of like the ups and downs and the the kind of like anti auteur, not like anti auteur, like against auteur, but like anti auteur, antichrist, like photo negative auteur mm. kind of kind of idea that appeals to me because as probably is obvious from the way this podcast goes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty riffy kind of guy. <laughs> I've always liked, uh, maybe not liked, but I've been more comfortable with the idea that you just sort of uh, try something. And if it works, great. Do something else. And if it doesn't work, like, I don't know, try again. Mm. But that way of doing things rather than this sort of, uh, like, this is my magnum opus. Yeah. This is my, all the pieces come together and I'm going to work for, you know, I'm not so much criticizing Lynch here as maybe somebody like Terrence Malick or, which again is not, I'm not saying Terrence Malick is bad or anything, <laughs> but that, you know, you have Terrence Malick who's like made relatively few movies and each one is an event and like, oh my God, the, the master has emerged from his <laughs> workshop with the new revelation, you know, something like that. Yeah. And, um, despite my tone, I'm not actually making fun of anybody who thinks that, but it's fine. But uh, in contrast to that, you have Mike, who's like, yeah, I made eight movies this year. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. one of them's about goblins, one of them's a rom-com, one of them's this bullhead thing, one of yeah. them's, you know, a, a kid's movie with a guy in a puppet costume. Th- you know, like, they're eight completely different movies, and uh, some of them are, you know, going to be really successful and some of them are not and some of them are going to be cult favorites and some yeah. of them are going to be total garbage and oh well on to the next one this is funny going back to lynch because lynch isn't as prolific uh like his output isn't as prolific as Mike, obviously but no. um but lynch does have that one movie called a straight story Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just a guy who rides a tractor across the country. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like a really wholesome, just really wholesome story. Oh yeah. You know, but I mean, even, a- even the elephant man. Oh yeah. Elephant man's like a pretty heartfelt. Yeah. Like it's, it's about a literal sideshow freak. And, yeah. and so it's Lynchian in that way, but it is a really, uh, it's just a classic movie. Yeah, that yeah. Structurally speaking, totally. Yeah, totally. Um, but even in the straight story, not this is about Lynch, but I have to say this: in this straight story, I read about. I read this in the Lynch biography. Is that like a car goes past the the old man on a tractor, and it goes in one direction, but they pull his hat off in the wrong direction, as if the wind came from the opposite side. You know, uh-huh. so like if a if a car goes past you, your hat would blow off behind you. Right. But his his hat blows off forward, <laughs> which is like, no, no. Lynch was like, no, this is the way we're doing it. We got to right. do it that way. You know, it, which is 
reminds me of like a Mike kind of decision. Like, oh, we're going to, we have to do it this way. Like, yeah. I don't, for whatever decision, for whatever reason, that art, the art of that has to come out for them in that way. Yeah. You know? And yeah, I, I have a ton of appreciation for that when it comes. Oh up. yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. Um, really, I, it's just one of these things that like, I guess we, yeah, we haven't talked, we talked about it a little bit, but just like the, the way that this looks, it just looks yeah. great. Yeah. You know, the way shots are framed, the way, the, the quality of the, it, it looks like it was shot on film. Yeah. You know, which might not have, I was just saying how like this, it looks great. The film grain, oh, the yeah. lighting, the, just the, the filmmaking stuff. The music is great. Yeah. Um, just as a, as like a sensual experience, even aside yeah. from all this riffing about what, what it means and all that. Like it just yeah. feels really cool. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like, I remember when I saw it back in the day, if like the style felt ahead, his movies always felt ahead of its time or like not if that's the way to say it, but it always, it felt like the actual film, like lighting and colors and things always looked really wild and fresh to me. Yeah. Um, it's funny to see it going back because it's definitely like film, you know, and it's saturated and kind of like the lighting is looks kind of antiquated by today's standards. Yeah. But yeah. um, but there is this one amazing shot that he finds out, he gets a note. The Gozu hands him the note and he's like, uh, I got to go back to the dump because the note is from his brother. It's like, I, I'll meet you at the dump, you know? <laughs> And he's like, yeah. okay. So he drives back. And then I don't know what the shot, why it's included at all, but it's like the Ferris wheel, like with the sort of industry behind, the uh, industrial towers, smokestacks behind it. But it's like this really beautiful shot. I know, I had that that singled out too. Yeah. That's such an amazing shot. Oh, it's beautiful. And I don't, I don't know what it's about or why. Well, there's even another one like just when... Uh, as as they're driving into Nagoya, they're you know they're driving down this one two lane you know country road kind of thing through a plain and it's all wintry looking and um, then the road just kind of ends into a body of yeah. water yeah you know un- unexpectedly there's just a river a pond or something like that and the roads on the other side and just kind of in that it has this kind of wide, slightly overhead shot of Minami standing, you know, in front of the car stopped at the waterfront and he's, he throws something into it. And there's just these little shots like that, that don't really, they're not advancing the plot. They're not obviously so stylish and like that, but they just do have a real kind of, they're just awesome. Yeah. That one, they have a real feeling. That one's wild because I was that one can't be fabricated. So there is a road somewhere that just breaks off into some kind of river or canal. Yeah. Thing. Uh, and, and, um, I, yeah, the note that I wrote down for that one, and I don't know, I don't even know why the hell I wrote this. I wrote snapshot from God. <laughs> so, I was like, okay, I don't know what the hell that means, but it zooms out and it looks like, it looks like someone is kind of watching him on the edge. And it's also like that that's an interesting scene because he drives up to the edge and he almost like 
this water almost appears to him. It's like a normal yeah. road. And then he's like caught off guard and almost drives into the water. Like he didn't see it was happening. Right. I think that's I think that's when most of the weirdness actually kicks off in the film. Oh, totally. Before yeah. that that point, it's just you think like, okay, it's, this is a director who makes lots of Yakuza movies. These guys are in the Yakuza. This is going to be one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, dude, talk about aesthetically pleasing things. When she, when female Ozaki is in the, like the hotel <laughs> and Minami comes over and just like pokes her boob with his finger. <laughs> like, yeah, like a, testing if she's real. Or yeah, like, yeah, right. Like, just like, what, what's going to happen? Like, this is the voice that comes out that just goes, Gozu, Gozu. It's like, like his voice starts coming out of her yeah. stomach or vagina or somewhere that's not her mouth. <laughs> yeah, which might be the male Ozaki the male counterpart or whatever that's inside of her. And it's also, the subtitles don't give you English words. So I don't know if it's real Japanese words or if they're like these these strange, because it is actually the same sort of incantation that the shopkeepers gave. Mm -hmm. But the quality of the voice, whatever filter they're using to produce this kind of like quasi-buzzy, distorted, blown-out radio filter sound is so good, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like the best sound. I'm like, man, I want to figure out how to recreate that so badly. Well, that was one of the things I was thinking about with the music, too, because this is... Uh, I didn't look much into the actual... any info about like the actual making of the music, but it's... You know, it, it is a, um, a screechy noise soundtrack yeah you know familiar to anyone who's seen an a24 horror movie or something like that this is this is a thing this is a, a trope i guess since penderecki but like of really atonal scrapey screechy noises yeah like strings particularly or strings the, strings or in a lot of cases there's an instrument called a water phone oh that is a a, a circle of metal tines oh yeah around yeah. A, a water-filled gourd yeah, and you bow the tines and pluck the tines, and you know those are classic, uh, classic horror movie soundtrack generator um, things. And so the score to Gozu totally fits into that zone of of atonal, scrapey, post Penderecki stuff, but it feels really deep. It doesn't yeah. feel like oh, you're doing the screechy waterphone thing. It feels like it makes something cliche feel fresh. Yeah. Something that, to me, my jaded self in 2023, thinking, oh, cool, it's a screechy thing. Yeah. That I go back and watch this, and I'm like, it's like I've never heard the screechy thing horror soundtrack before. Yeah, it's super effective. And I forgot what scene it is. I didn't write it down, but there is one thing where the scene doesn't end, but then the, the, the soundtrack kicks into that atonal screeching, and it, like, it, like draws you into the next scene as like a transition between these two. It is so effective and just pulling you into the next one. Because you know, the edits are kind of like, they're classic film edits, they're kind of hard. And I noticed that with these, they're not very like smooth edits, you know, um, which is probably just comes with the territory uh, of like physically editing the film. But that that, that soundtrack usage in, was totally... It was like it smoothed out and really gave this kind of fluidity to how the the editing of the film worked. Maybe this is a spot to end on. Um, 
a line of dialogue from the very, very early in the movie. I, when I was watching this, I heard this line and thought like, oh, this is the key to the movie. Mm. Is that the the opening scene, you know, the Yakuza guys are all meeting at a cafe. You see, so you see the all the gangsters coming in, greeting each other, sitting down. And at the same time, out, out front of this cafe is a, a pair of women like admiring a chihuahua. Yeah. They're holding one of them is holding the dog and they're petting it and oh look how cute he is. And so this keeps going on while you're seeing these gangsters assembling. And then uh Ozaki shows up, you know, they're okay, we can get the meeting together, you know. Well, let's discuss our Yakuza business. And then Ozaki interrupts, you know, boss, boss, I gotta, I have something to tell you. And, okay, Ozaki, what is it? So, Everything I'm about to tell you is a joke. So don't take it too seriously. <laughs> yeah. And they the the Yakuza guys okay sure he says that dog out there is a specially trained attack dog only <laughs> you know bred for the specific purpose of hunting and trapping yakuza that that dog has been out there watching us and, and they all take him very seriously <laughs> they're all looking at like oh fuck it's a yakuza hunting dog dude and then Ozaki goes out and kills the dog. Yeah. In a really, really cartoonish, um, <laughs> like a comical way, but does still kill the dog. Um, yeah. The dog is fine. It's very clearly a stuffed animal that he's throwing around. But um, I just thought that that line, everything I'm about to tell you is a joke, is like, oh, that's the movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. I almost imagine that that's Mike being like, that, that that would be Mike's rebuttal to guys like us. <laughs> saying we're going to talk for two hours about your movie. <laughs> what does it all mean, man? What is it? Yeah. He's like, I said it. It's a fucking joke. Yeah. Don't right. take it too seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoyed what you heard, please give us a five-star rating. And feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com.